Hello and welcome to today's episode of Flight to Freedom. I'm really excited to have Lydia Sarah here today chatting to us about autism and eating disorders. Livia is an autism advocate and eating disorder survivor that now helps others overcome their own mental barriers through her courses, coaching programs and books. She is the creator behind the blog, blog livelabelfree.com and the host of the Live Label Free podcast. Livia is a lifelong learner that loves listening to audiobooks, going on walks and reading the latest science on all things neuro neurodiversity and eating disorders. I can't talk very well today, so you're all going to have to <laughs> bear with me because I seem, seem to be struggling forming words, but it's all good. I'm sure you'll understand me anyway. Yes. Livia, welcome to my podcast and thank you so much for agreeing to come on and be my guest. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be on this podcast, especially because, you know, you have the word freedom in Fly to Freedom because I'm, of course, live label free. And I think, you know, ultimately beyond eating disorder recovery and everything mental health we talk about nowadays, I think the ultimate goal of, you know, humanity is to feel free, to have freedom. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you so much for having me. And I'm really, really excited to be here. Oh, amazing. And I totally agree with the freedom. It's the freedom to be authentically who you are, isn't it? Yeah. And I think to start to, to not be enslaved to external circumstances, I think is a huge part, yes. part of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Right, so I've got a few icebreaker questions. Okay. Um, you love going on walks, don't you? I do. So what's your favorite memory from one of your walks? Um, it's funny because the first one that comes to almost I don't want to say to mind, like because I feel it in, in my body. Um, the first one that comes to me is I think is a walk that I went on with my mom and this was you know after I had been in eating disorder treatment for nearly half a year and wasn't allowed to do exercise you know because I had had a compulsive relationship with exercise in the past um and I remember you know not being allowed to exercise for many months and then when I was finally you know quote-unquote weight restored whatever that even means because my health was still far from restored in my mental health um but I remember going on a walk with my mom um, when I had returned from treatment. And because I hadn't been able to move for so long and hadn't been able to like authentically do that in a way that was separate from compulsion or the eating disorder, that's the most memorable walk to me um, because it was the first time where I truly felt like I'm walking just for the sake of walking, not because I'm trying to, you know, burn calories or deserve food or anything like that. Amazing. Or reach a number. Yeah. I used to have to reach the number of steps. Yes. Yeah. So and exhausting. I'd love to talk about numbers as well in a bit because that is a huge part uh, like of autism and eating disorder specifically <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay next question you have your own podcast yes who would be your dream guest to interview on your podcast oh I have so many I literally have this like podcast 
like Google document that has like already connected to want to have on dream gifts, but probably not likely. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, it's I I really have a hard time answering that. Um, but I think someone that comes to mind immediately is um Stephen Porges. I don't know if you have ever heard of him, but he's a, a neuroscientist and he the um creator of the polyvagal theory which basically yeah is like a whole new lens of you know the autonomic nervous system and trauma and all that um and in my work of, of being a coach um especially you know with autism um I've learned that you know the traditional eating disorder treatment approaches that you know I was I hate to say victim, but almost victim too, <laughs> because it was absolutely traumatizing, um, was just always the therapy and the talking and the CBT and the DBT and, you know, um, sitting on a couch and sharing all your problems, basically, and just always talking about it as if it was this purely cognitive issue. Um, was for me, I've learned that also upon reflecting a lot, <laughs> um, was, was that the eating disorder, a huge part of it was was as a means to control my nervous system and the way that I like could almost numb that fight or flight response that I think is almost inherent to autistic people in a way um so anyways yeah I've ever since I learned about the polyvagal theory I have just been fascinated by this perspective and really have started also integrating it into not only my own life but helping my clients you know feel more peace and ease and freedom um so yeah I definitely love to have Stephen Porges on the podcast someday to like have him explain his theory because it feels much more fitting than me trying to interpret it and explain it <laughs> amazing so I haven't heard of him but I have heard of the polyvagal theory yeah uh, next question, totally different. If you could invent a new ice cream flavor, what would it be? Um, again, first thing that comes to mind is pistachio chocolate chip. <laughs> um, nice. Because that there's pistachio and there's chocolate chip. And I just love that like amaretto almond flavor with the pistachio. And I feel like it goes really well with chocolate as well um like chocolate biscotti so definitely pistachio chocolate chip nice I think I would have to go I hadn't even considered this now it's all in my head um it would have to be like peanut butter with crunch like crunchy peanut uh -huh. butter with salted caramel and dark chocolate oh that that sounds like incredible like totally up my alley <laughs> yeah. yeah oh yeah we could just I uh, have a podcast about ice cream flavors now, oh, couldn't definitely. we? definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I know you've written, you've got one book published, is that right? And you've got Two another one. Two at the moment. Two at the moment. Yeah, and Amazing. I have three that are backlogged. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Um, what book would you choose to read again for the first time that was so impactful on you? or you enjoyed so much it doesn't have to be a fiction book it can be any type of book I think um the practice by Seth Godin um and Seth Godin is I would love to have him on the podcast too one time but he's like very 
famous in the entrepreneurial marketing space. Um, but he he writes a lot of books on marketing. He's like a twenty times New York Times bestselling author. Um, and he has ADHD. He's also neurodivergent. Um, but he wrote this book called The Practice, which originally was written, you know, how when you have a business, like you have to have, like you're not always going to feel like showing up. You're not always going to feel like writing or getting up early and doing the things that need to be done. Um, but he talks about how, regardless of whether you feel like it, it it has to almost become your identity. It has to be a practice. Um, because when you say like, this is something that I just do, it almost becomes a natural thing and it, and it just becomes a flow that you are just in um and just like I learned a lot of from that book about business and marketing too but it's also just helped me in so many other ways in in my life because I think ultimately you know our identity who we are as a person is founded on our habits uh, is founded on our practices um and in terms of eating disorder like you could almost see having an eating disorder as a practice in a way <laughs> like every day I eat the same thing every day I I have to adhere to the same numbers the same structure like because this is my identity and I think one of the biggest reasons it's so hard to recover from an eating disorder is because you're basically creating a new identity um which requires all new neural networks and just a new state of being and like humans are creatures of habit so by nature you know breaking who you used to be and then becoming someone new building someone new not knowing what that new person is going to look like is going to do that's terrifying <laughs> um it so anyways is. to answer your question it would definitely be the practice by seth godin <laughs> fantastic and last question um from this podcast what would you like to communicate to the listeners what would you like them to take away from this podcast um I think two things number one is I want the listeners because I'm assuming it's going to be people that may suspect they're autistic and struggle with with food or eating as well as you know caregivers or loved ones or, because I think so many people have someone they know that is autistic um and may or may not struggle with food I think number one is that I want them to feel seen and and that my that their story is shared that they're not alone in whatever they're going through number 1 and number 2 is that um they go they take away hope um that you know whatever they're dealing with or whatever they're struggling with um that it's possible to to not only you know accept this um but also embrace it because I think you know so often we we try to get rid of the things we don't like or we struggle with um but i think the moment that we can say you know i'm becoming stronger not in spite of this thing but because of it i think that's where the true freedom <laughs> lies yeah absolutely um i don't as i was saying to you before and i don't know how many of the listeners know or not my one of my sons is autistic and I don't view it as an illness oh, or it isn't. A, a disability. Yeah. It's just part of who he is. Right. And as part of what makes him special, it's not a yeah. negative. It's just something that, yes, I had to learn how he learned mm -hmm. because it was different from how I learned. Yeah. 
But other than that, it is something to be embraced. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, right. <laughs> just moving on from that. Um, so can you tell us just a bit about your own journey mm -hmm. and what inspired you to become an autism advocate and your approach to helping others from your own journey? Yeah, so... I mean, I'm going to try and keep this as concise as possible, <laughs> but I have a hard time with that. That's why I wrote an entire memoir <laughs> of my life story. Um, but in, in a nutshell, you know, I think as any autistic person or neurodivergent person can attest to is like, I think from a very, very, very young age, you already kind of know, like, I'm not like everyone else. I learn differently. Like you say, like I interact differently. I just experience the world very differently. Um, so some examples from my life were, you know, I, everything I ever did always had to have like a purpose. Like it had, like I had to do something for an outcome or for a goal. Like I would never do anything just for the sake of doing it. And I think that's why, you know, I could never engage in like little kid small talk or even adult small talk if we're being honest because I'm like there's no like outcome of this <laughs> like there's no purpose in me doing this so I remember you know being six seven eight nine ten years old and just having these like philosophical conversations about why humans are alive and you know what's the purpose of being on this planet if we're all gonna die anyways you know with my parents and with like other parents and people just saying she's so mature like how old is she like she's wise beyond her years kind of thing um because I I was literally incapable of you know imitating doll voices or drawing drawings that I knew were going to be tossed in the trash can after anyway <laughs> like I was like there's no point in this um so that is number one and I think again we were talking before we started recording how like not all autistic traits are universal to autistic people um but for me personally I have found from the autistic people that I have met and spoken to and coached that that like everything needing to have a reason is is very common um so yeah, and then when it came to the eating disorder, it was like, that was my purpose. And, and everything, like, there always had to be a reason to eat. Otherwise, I was like, this is pointless kind of thing. So that's a, a side tangent that I'll get into later. Um, But yeah, so that, um, growing up, I always took things very literally, like, sarcastic jokes. Um, Livia, roll up your sleeves. And then everyone would start laughing because they knew that I would literally roll up my sleeves. Um... What else? Uh, very perfectionistic and everything had to be in its place, had to be a certain way. Nothing could be out of place. Um, I mean, the only drawings I would draw were, you know, symmetrical rainbows, symmetrical castles, or I would trace coloring pages on the window and everything was, you know, had to be colored perfectly inside the lines. Um, the first part of Rainbow Girl, my book, is called Coloring Inside the Lines. Um, so yeah, just a lot of, you know, what would surface level be labeled as perfectionistic, uh, obsessive, rigid, um, very that. Um, and, and, you know, growing up, I mean, people aren't educated on autism, right? Um, and I think especially in, in girls, um, and, you know, people that are not boys and don't fit that stereotype of oh very good at solving a math equation knows how to solve a rubik's cube sits in the corner and reads textbooks all day <laughs> you know you know if you don't fit in that box it's like oh you can't they're probably not autistic um so anyways growing up you know 
no one really knew anything. It was just, that was just Livia. She's very, that's how it always is. Um, but when I was around 11 years old and I was in, I don't know what, what it is in the UK, but in the US, I, I grew up in Boston. Um, I was in fifth grade, so I was around 11 years old, and we started learning about health and nutrition and puberty and in school. Um, and that was definitely the spark that just set off my decade-long battle with an eating disorder. Um, Could well, I just ask, yeah. was that because you wanted to follow the guidelines, follow the guidance yes. to the letter because... Yes. So part of that was taking all the recommendations very literally. You know, if you eat too many cookies, you will develop, quote unquote, obesity. You like if you don't exercise for the recommended amount of time each day, you know, you'll get heart disease, like you'll get diabetes, blah, 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 blah. Like Mm -hmm. looking back now, all so deeply rooted in a diet culture and B fat phobia, (laughs) if we're being honest. Um, But but yeah, I, I was like this. I need to almost fit this perfect model. Like I need to be the epitome of health. And and then part of that was also almost this, it was like almost a solution to like my existential crisis in a way of like, what is my purpose on this earth? Something that I've been asking myself since I remember being conscious. And I remember just like, you know, cause I had such a hard time making friends and connecting with other people that I was like, what am I doing here? And then when it was like, learning about health and nutrition it was almost like it landed in my lap I was like if I can just be this perfect healthy eater I have found my purpose in life um so that kind of you know led to me just yeah all the eating disorder behaviors you know counting calories weighing food eating only healthy and clean um exercising way too much um just completely isolating myself from anything eating disorder became my best friend um because you know my parents were like okay there's something wrong with this child like why is she not doing the normal human function of eating and interacting with people I was you know sent to the pediatrician the doctor um and when I wasn't gaining weight and was even refusing to gain weight and drink the ensure the nutrition shakes that they said you need to drink this um I was diagnosed with anorexia and depression um just probably a year after the whole thing started um and I just remember from that day like that's kind of when the whole resistance started in a way because I never resonated with that label anorexia because in health class we had learned about the three eating disorders because there are only three of course right um anorexia bulimia and binge eating and I mean I knew I didn't have binge eating disorder. I knew I didn't have bulimia. And so it was like, they she has anorexia. But because in the textbook, it said, you know, people with anorexia see themselves as very fat, have a very strong desire to lose weight. I was like, no, but this is all wrong. I can't have anorexia because for me, the the losing weight and the controlling the food and the overexercise, it was never driven by a desire to influence my body shape or size it was purely like this is something that gives me purpose and control um and and that was you know missed for or mostly more importantly invalidated for so many years it was like you're lying to us in treatment that's what they would say to me like it would be so much help more helpful if you would be honest blah 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 um and almost in treatment too i felt like 
I'm here and all these people are talking about body dysmorphia and wanting to lose weight and thinking they're fat, but like, I don't belong here because my eating disorder was never driven out of that. And that is very, very, very common among autistic people with eating disorders is that there's like almost this anorexic or not um like any type of, you know, stereotypical eating disorder behavior. But the, the underlying reason for engaging in the behavior is a lot of the time not rooted in in body or in, you know, wanting to lose weight or any kind of that kind of stuff. Um, So, yeah, that I mean, I was tossed in and out of treatment for years, just constantly. She has to go because she's not gaining weight. She's not eating. I would be the perfect patient because that's me, type A, you know, people, please. <laughs> um, and then as soon as I would leave treatment, it would be just like, okay, downhill from there again. Um, and I was often, you know, like I said, kicked out of treatment because I was manipulative and resistant and non-compliant because I would like hide food and secretly exercise and and like the treatment provider said I would not be honest even though I was and and then it kind of reached a point where I I was like okay well I'm gonna go in and out of treatment anyways I might as well make a fun game out of this um so so I would go and I would tell the treatment providers exactly what they wanted to hear so they would be like, thanks for being honest with us. And I'd be like, yeah, screw you. You know, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then ultimately in 2015, so like around four years after my anorexia depression diagnosis, we moved back, back to the Netherlands. Um, because like I said, I was, I grew up in Boston, but both my parents are Dutch and I am by blood Dutch. Um, and that's kind of when, shit like hit the fan so bad that I almost died <laughs> um and I know I'm laughing but he bringing humor to this is like the only way that I'm able to talk about it in a way yeah, um and because when we moved to the Netherlands Netherlands see I can't talk either today <laughs> um <laughs> it you know I was already almost 16 years old so everyone had their own clicky friend groups and I was this new girl that didn't want to talk to anyone and what you know was just very real and Clearly, just, I was, I looked like, you know, someone with an eating disorder, let's just put it that way. Um, and so then, you know, I, within two weeks of moving, my mom had scheduled this appointment with this professional here who basically said, you know, if you don't gain X amount of weight in the next th three weeks, you know, we're going to put you inpatient. Um, well, the moment that I heard that, you know, like, we don't trust you, <laughs> um, and almost having this demand put on me, like, if this, then that, like, almost made it incapable for me to eat at all, because, because it was just, I, I felt like I couldn't breathe, like, I felt like I was totally being pushed in a corner, because I obviously was, well, long story short, I was forced into treatment, um, that for about four months, I was inpatient in the Netherlands, um, and I don't think I've ever had as traumatizing a life experience as that four month stay um and I and I just knew in my heart you know like if I stay here like I I am going to die like I knew that like there's more chance that this place is going to kill me than that my eating disorder ever could <laughs> like I know that's a very strong statement to make but I, I truly still believe that um and unfortunately almost everyone I was in treatment with at the time is no longer with us because of the trauma um but anyways I remember you know literally saying okay I, I need to like 
escape like those because no one's gonna listen to me no one's believing me these are the professionals i'm the sick one um so i remember there was this one night and i like vividly described this entire experience in my book julia i'll have to send you my book after this because like i'm just like keep mentioning it now um and and so i walked I, I escaped treatment in the middle of the night and I put pillows under the bed sheets and everything to make it look like I was sleeping. And I just basically ran home in the middle of the night. And um, I think it does a number to show how how much this treatment center cared because they didn't realize I was gone until I was already home and my mom called them saying, why is Olivia showing up at our front door in the middle of the night? And they wow. were like, oh she's not in her room like it was it was just anyways um but okay but basically after that you know the next day I went back to the treatment facility sat down in this professional's office and that was the day she told me you're just going to have to accept the fact that you are never going to get better because you're so resistant and manipulative and non-compliant blah 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 you've gone through like over 10 different treatments and nothing's helped and everything's made everything worse so in some cases you know full recovery isn't possible you're probably gonna die good luck bye um yeah so kind of from there everything i did almost die um until one night i was having horrible panic attack like i was for the past several months um and there was one thing specifically about that night that I remember so clearly, and it was almost the first time that it registered to me. I saw my two sisters, my two younger sisters, sitting in the corner, trembling, just terror and fear in their eyes. And it was that moment of looking at them and, and just really cognizing for the first time this isn't just about me anymore. This is affecting those that I love more than anything in the world um and it was that night in 2017 i remember it so clearly that i said the words i can't do this anymore um and it was on that day that i decided come hell or high water but i am going to do whatever it takes to beat this illness and and to live a life that's actually worth living because this isn't living this is surviving if if we can even call it that fast forward to three years later i started coaching other people with eating disorders mind you I didn't I still didn't know about autism at this time um my very first client was autistic and I asked her why do you reach out to me you know I was of course so nervous and so afraid it was my first client um and I didn't have any shiny golden diplomas hanging on my wall like the so-called professional did that told me I was never gonna get better um I asked her you know why'd you reach out to me um and I had my blog and my Instagram at this time and she said you know I read your story on your website about you being labeled as too complex and basically being tossed in and out of treatment and I so deeply resonated with that because I'm autistic and I have an eating disorder and the professionals don't understand me as I was talking to this girl young woman it became more and more clear to me that this autism was literally a piece of the missing piece of my entire life. I started reading about autism and just click, there it was. It was like, this was the whole reason I got an eating disorder, um, basically. And I think that I like to say how like all the work prior to that was like baking a recovery cake. And this autism discovery was like the cherry on top. Like that was the one thing that I needed to be like, yep, I'm leaving the eating disorder behind me. Like, 
I am fully recovered from my eating disorder. And that just set off a storm of, you know, me being like, okay, I'm totally niching down on autism and eating disorders and helping other people understand this overlap um, so that they can have compassion and embrace the autism rather than trying to destroy it like so many prior treatment providers did. So in a nutshell, that's kind of me and my story and why I'm so incredibly passionate about autism and eating disorders. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm sorry you had that experience with treatment. It's not okay. Yeah. Um, it's not okay at all. And unfortunately, it's all too common. Yeah, yeah. Really is so common. And it feels to me that there is boxes mm -hmm. that you must fit in in treatment yep. in order to recover. Yeah. And yep. if you don't fit in those boxes, then you simply don't fit in recovery. Right. And yeah. It's, it's not okay. And yeah. I don't know, you, you talked about body image being a cause for eating disorders. Mm -hmm. In all my clients and my experience, I have not met one person that that was the case for. Right, right, right. It's, it's just like, it's, it's funny because we use the word like distorted body image, but that word distortion, I'm like, the profession, the professionals have a distorted image of what's actually going on. Like, I yeah. recently, my mom recently sent me an article like, oh, they're totally missing the mark again. It was this like scientific publication with like 200 co-authors of like, uh, people with anorexia have a very strong desire to be thin because they see themselves as delusionally fat. And I'm like, like, are you not listening to your patients? to the people you're talking to like yeah it's it's heartbreaking it's absolutely heartbreaking and to see you know how much money and funding is in is going into you know supporting these quote-unquote professionals and how you know you and me and we were just talking about victoria kleinsman you know as as like people with real lived experience like we're not covered by insurance because we don't have a shiny golden diploma that we can hang behind us. Um, but it's like, like I alluded to before, you know, how how valuable is that diploma actually if you're telling people they're never going to get better? You know, if you're telling people, oh, you don't fit into my box, goodbye, good luck, next, please. Like it's yeah. some sort of, you know, factory or something. Yeah, it's... <sighs> My personal view, and this is just my view and just my opinion, it's not right, wrong, good or bad. It's mm -hmm. just how I see things. It's that you cannot understand something fully if you haven't lived it because you can't know how it feels. Somebody can tell you how it feels, but if you tell somebody that's never lived in anorexia that you're terrified of food, yeah that makes no logical sense right 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 yeah no I mean I I could not agree more I I believe that lived experience is the most valuable qualification if there ever is one um and that would piss me off more than anything in treatment is when my therapist would say I understand and I would <laughs> I would be like no you fucking don't don't tell me <laughs> I understand because you don't <laughs> 
yeah yeah absolutely um so a couple of things I wanted to talk to about autism and eating disorders and all that is Mm -hmm. autism Mm -hmm. a lot of people have this stereotype in their minds when they think of somebody autistic and you kind of described it like a wizard math sits in the corner bit of a nerd very much a loner yes likes to likes their own company doesn't need friends yeah my experience of autism um is nothing like that at all Mm -hmm. mine either (laughs) yeah (laughs) and it it's not a a one-size-fits-all description Mm -hmm. in any shape or form is it yeah no definitely you're definitely right and that word loner lonely wants to be alone doesn't want to have friends I mean when you said that it it like really sparked something in me um because we were just talking about you know how I'm moving back to the U.S. where I grew up um because I have been feeling very very lonely the past years if we're being honest um because I mean being a writer and writing books is is a lonely pursuit and I mean I accept that like it's part of the job description I guess um and you know growing up undiagnosed autistic not like having an eating disorder like I never really got the chance to make connections or like form relationships that you know really were truly meaningful and and I was just telling you like the most amazing connections I have made have also been online in the past few years you know with meeting you and meeting other coaches and you know meeting my clients and just so much lived shared lived experience that when we say like obviously we never can fully understand each other but like when we say oh I feel that or I understand like we know like that like I can feel and we know that that is actually true (laughs) um and they're not just saying that to make us feel better um but yeah I mean the loneliness is definitely like I mean you there are some autistic people that you know maybe don't want to have friends but like I can hardly believe that um because I used to think that I didn't need anyone I used to think I didn't need friends especially during my eating disorder I was like I do not need anyone else in this world as long as I have Ed to you know tell me what to do I don't need anyone um but I think that sense of loneliness almost becomes stronger when you do recover from your eating disorder because you almost have this new like well what is actually my purpose in this life and I think we underestimate the power that you know really meaningful relationships have um and and I've only realized that power until I've started forming them yeah oh the power of deep connections of people that see you for who you are is you just can't really put it into words it's so so incredibly powerful and so incredibly important right absolutely um another thing I wanted to talk to you about is the so many people who suffer from an eating disorder show very strong autistic tendencies even if they've never been diagnosed and Mm -hmm. Actually, I did. I had a lot of mm-hmm. very strong autistic tendencies, a lot of OCD, a lot mm-hmm. of 
very black and white thinking, a lot of focus on numbers, which I know we're going to talk about soon. Yeah. Which for me did lessen a lot in recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you believe or do you think that part of the survival response that you invariably end up in, Mm -hmm. in an eating disorder is showing these very strong autistic tendencies. Yes, absolutely. And it kind of circles back to two phrases, words I mentioned before. And number one was, you know, the nervous system um, and the polyvagal theory that I mentioned. And two, you know, how freedom means not being enslaved to external circumstances. So I think what's really important almost footnote to put here is that, you know, a lot of times people almost become autistic during an eating disorder. And then it's like, well, how do we know they're autistic or not? Well, it was honestly a pretty straightforward answer to that. If you showed none of these traits, you know, in other ways before the eating disorder started, you're probably not autistic. And I think that's why, you know, when someone does have an eating disorder and when you're trying to figure out if they're autistic or not, you basically have to look at who the person was before they got their eating disorder. Um, how did they behave? How did they act? Um, because for me, you know, it was very clear upon reflection that all of these food and exercise behaviors were manifestations of of traits that existed long before, you know, only drawing the symmetrical castles, you know, the philosophical questions, everything, blah, blah, blah what I kind of touched on before. Um, so that's really important is, you know, when diagnosing or even questioning the autism piece to look at who is the person without the eating disorder, which can be hard because sometimes, you know, the eating disorder can start at a very young age. Yes, so it, can. It, it can be really hard, but I, I think that is just important to point out. Um, and then the second part of the question, um, yeah, with the, the fight or flight response, I think one of the reasons why, and this is again, just completely my theory. <laughs> um, I'm not saying this is scientifically proven, but what can actually be scientifically proven these days, right, Um, is, you know, when you're autistic, I feel like you're almost constantly living in either a state of fight or flight mode, or you're in the state of shutdown, complete paralysis mode, because you're almost constantly on hyper alert, trying to, like, fend off danger, trying to constantly make sure you are safe, and what do humans do, or any species, when we feel unsafe, we, we check everything, we constantly make sure everything is just how we put it, you know, and that's, you know, and we turn to external, we turn to our external environment to make sure that we're safe. And and how can that manifest as, you know, counting things, counting calories, counting steps, you know, weighing food, not going over a certain number. These are all external things that give us a sense of, oh, I can breathe, everything's okay. And I think because restriction, you know, an eating disorder is trauma to the body it's showing it's telling the body we are in danger there's a famine watch out when your body perceives that i mean eating disorder or not you are going to become obsessive you know you're going to exhibit traits that that parallel the fight or flight response so i think that's first of all why these autistic traits are so just the result of of a malnourished brain um and oh yeah and then the other thing I said was the external circumstances but I already just touched on that (laughs) (laughs) so uh, two things I wanted to talk uh, and they're completely different from each other so where should I go first 
Um, do you think that there is a stronger incidence of people who have autistic traits developing in eating disorder? Can you repeat the question? Do you think people who have autistic traits from a young age, mm -hmm. prior to any eating disorders, mm -hmm. have a stronger likelihood of developing an eating 100%. disorder? 100%. I know I didn't let you finish, but I was like 100. Yes, 100%. <laughs> yes. Um, because again, with the external circumstances and, you know, when you're born into a world that wasn't built for you, 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 you're basically not safe. You're constantly in danger. You're constantly being threatened. Well, that's at least how your nervous system perceives it. Um, and again, going, what do we do when we're threatened? We turn to external circumstances. And what is one external circumstance that we all have to deal with every single day for the rest of our life without fail? Food, 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 food. <laughs> and I think that's why, you know, we even see in, in autistic people, and even for myself too, like, I was the quote-unquote picky eater growing up. I did not eat anything else for breakfast, lunch, dinner, for basically until the day that I decided I'm going on a healthy diet um, because nothing else felt safe to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that word safety and the word trust is a huge component in all of this is that, you know, when we don't feel safe, when we don't trust other things, other circumstances, we, we, always, we stick to the circumstances we know. And I think, you know, that's again it's like it's almost a given that that's going to manifest into food somehow because you know not everyone can go uh smoke or you know have a sex addiction or drink alcohol right the other agents but we all no matter how old we are can control our food and can control yeah. our movement unless we're trapped in a cage but i mean most of us aren't <laughs> because the eating disorder does that of course but, but even if we're trapped in a cage and have no control of what food is given to us. We have control yeah. of what we eat. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like um, yeah. it's like when people go on hunger strike. It's yes. like I'm not eating because just to prove that you can't tell me what to do. Yeah. yeah. Food is, is the one thing that in a world where you feel is out of control. Yeah. That exactly. you can turn to to control. Right. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, if if professionals would recognize that more of like, that how common that is and and really have compassion and and really stop with the boxes and honestly just have epistemic humility and and just admitting like I'm I'm a lifelong learner I really don't know anything you teach me you tell me and we're gonna go on this journey together I think that would just change the entire entire treatment system I 100% agree I think Every single one of my clients teaches me something new because yes. every single one is different. Yes. And yes. their needs are all different. Exactly. Even if there are similarities, their needs are still different because they're different people. Exactly. Right. The big one, numbers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> numbers are so safe, aren't they? Numbers are clean. They're black and white. They're, you can't misinterpret. And number 10 is a number 10. Right. right. They're very, very safe. So numbers for me in the eating disorder were huge, absolutely huge. I counted in actual fact. No, I did this from way before the eating disorder from mm -hmm. as far back as I remember. I counted every step I took mm -hmm. like in my head. Numbers didn't have to add up to anything, but I just had to count them. Yeah. And that 
turn to everything in the eating disorder. I would count everything in the room I was in. I would count every calorie I ate. Mm. I would count every step I took. If I ran out of things to count, I would just count my breathing. Mm -hmm. The TV volume had to be a multiple of two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> yeah. And I felt literal, absolute panic if it was on something like 17. Right. It, that felt so unsafe. Mm -hmm. And numbers in recovery were incredibly triggering to me mm -hmm. because of the dependence I think I'd had on them and yeah. the meaning I'd given to them in the eating disorder. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, you know, that you mentioned that you counted everything before the eating disorder too. Because, <laughs> like, I know you're saying you're not autistic and I'm totally not, like, diagnosing I you. somewhere on the spectrum. But, I, but I think... Like, the fact that your son is autistic means that there must be, like, some sort of trait, probably, that, like, you have some coding that maybe he inherited to, like, almost a stronger degree, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, uh, it does. My husband is very autistic. Oh, oh, well, then, clearly. <laughs> so is his mother. <laughs> like, oh, um, yeah, because my, da my dad and my grandma is autistic, and my sister has ADHD. Well, I'm pretty sure my... And my grandfather on my mom's side had Asperger's who now you know what doesn't exist anymore but yeah like from both sides of the family there's a lot of autism mm -hmm. so then everything I, clicks my personal view is that most people are somewhere on the spectrum yeah I, I mean I think that argument is one that I, I mean I don't really mind it but I think that argument a lot of autistic people don't like it because it they feel like it invalidates their their autistic experience. Does that make sense? Um, by saying like everyone sense. is on the spectrum, then it's like, oh, well, now I'm not special anymore. You know what I mean? But, Everybody's special. But I think it's, I mean, we're not necessarily all on the autistic spectrum, but we are all on a spectrum. But then that leads to like a whole nother thing of like, well, what even is a spectrum? Like, why can't we just be in the world? Like, we're all like... Yeah, this makes my brain go crazy because we can only perceive and talk about things that we can consciously perceive. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm just going to stop talking and like make myself go crazy. <laughs> yeah. Excuse my dogs joining in with the podcast again. Yeah. I'm assuming we've got a delivery coming in. So if it gets too bad, I will pause and edit this. But hopefully we can just have a little bit of sing-song barking in the background. Yeah. Yeah, and it's good because I, whenever we talk about, you know, also as a kid, I remember learning about the planets that made my my brain go absolutely insane because I was like, no, but the universe is never ending. Like, we don't know what's out there, like infinity and beyond. Like, it's because we as humans can't, we can't cognize that. We can't perceive that because for us on a conscious level, everything needs to have a start and an end. Um, that it's impossible for us to to get rid of that frame of reference because it's all we know. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where the whole spectrum debacle comes in too. Of like, what if I think about a spectrum and I think about like for example the color spectrum, like I know that has a start and an end. And I'm like, but if every human is on a spectrum, like 
that's an infinite spectrum. So how can we even say it's a spectrum if it doesn't start or end anywhere? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's getting your head around the sheer possibilities, isn't it? There's yeah. the endless, yeah. infinite possibility of okay. everything. Right. Wow, this conversation's gone deep. It has, it has. <laughs> So tell us a bit about your new book that you're writing, or you've you've written now, haven't you? You're yes, just... it um it's now in the hands of the beta readers, so it's getting the endorsements now. Um, yeah. So my first book is a cookbook called Nourishing Neurodiversity. In ten days is actually the one year anniversary, so I don't know when this is coming out, but January twenty eighth is the ten year is the one year anniversary. Um, Rainbow Girl is my memoir about growing up undiagnosed autistic and how this led to an eating disorder. Basically, the full extensive version of everything we've talked about today. Um, mm -hmm. And then my third book, my next book, is called How to Beat Extreme Hunger. Um, I don't know, Julia, if you've experienced extreme hunger during recovery, but yes, I sure as hell did. Um, and that was terrifying because it was like my mind is no longer in quote-unquote control anymore my body has taken over um mm -hmm. it like I felt like I was just caught up in this tsunami of like you're gonna eat everything in sight and not stop until you're so full and physically nauseous that you cannot move and only lay on the bed in agony basically um anyways um yeah how to beat extreme hunger is probably the most scientific thing I have ever written there's over 130 scientific citations to that book wow. um, but I basically talk about my own experience with extreme hunger and just completely break down from like I said my experience but also from research and science and from the experience of my clients what extreme hunger is why it happens you know um how to deal with it how to get through it um I talk actually a lot about polyvagal theory and how the nervous system um plays into extreme hunger as well so it's really a perspective of this part of recovery that like I've never like I've never seen or heard before um because there's so many angles that I come at um that I've you know have have always been like have talked been talked about a bit in the eating disorder recovery space like polyvagal theory and hormones and extreme hunger and I talk about autism but I feel like this book just combined everything in one place um and one of my better readers actually sent me an email yesterday I sent them the book literally 48 hours ago 24 hours later she sends me I'm already a quarter of the way through your book and everyone says Tabitha Ferrar's book is the bible of recovery but this is way better oh, <laughs> and wow. I was like, I was like that's the biggest ego boost <laughs> um like obviously Tabitha Ferrar is great um but just her sending that it, it meant so much to me um and you know saying that like the way that I lay it all out and explain it it's like complex but very accessible um so I, I'm like I'm so excited for this book that's like I'm 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 losing myself and this is like my artisticness to just forget we're having a conversation um but yes <laughs> how to beat extreme hunger it's it's currently being proofread um I still need to include the audiobook too, um, but that book is definitely going to come out in 2024. Um, Amazing. So, yeah, so if anyone listening to this wants to get on the wait list, um, you can at livelabelfree.com forward slash extreme hunger 
book. Um, simple enough, right? Um, and yeah, if you follow me on Instagram at at live label free, um, I'll definitely be posting about it there. <laughs> <laughs> can yeah. I ask a bit more about the title what when you say how to beat extreme hunger what do you mean by beat Well, I am a huge lover of semantics and language and plays on words. When we take the word beat, B-E-A-T, the only way to beat or slash overcome extreme hunger is by eating. <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, that first of all, um, but basically, I, I guess we could say how to overcome extreme hunger too, um, because I think when we're going through extreme hunger, there's like two sides to it there's this terror and like I need this to end like this is not okay and at the same time it's like this almost relief of like I can eat whatever I want and like I can't stop until I'm so full and even though I feel so nauseous I f like my body finally feels safe um yes. so there's like two sides to it in a way it's like um, the choice is taken away from you isn't it right, you don't right. have to decide whether you right can make yourself eat or not because you don't have that option anymore exactly exactly um so yeah so when i say beat extreme hunger it's basically like how to the whole goal of the book and like in the end it gets very philosophical in a way and is is all about like living a life of freedom like we've talked about and you know how to become trigger proof and how to not feel guilty and how to you know not be trapped and enslaved to diet culture anymore and, and all of that um ultimately the entire goal of the book is how to overcome limitation and live a life of freedom like that's the whole goal um which circles back to what i said at the beginning of this episode amazing i'm excited for that book yeah well i'll, I'll definitely keep it. you updated i mean if if you want to be a better reader i mean be my like i'll, I'll send it to you to. we'll have to chat yeah. about this <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah we'll chat afterwards um amazing so well you've mentioned a few links there are there any others you'd like to mention or anything you'd like to tell the listeners about things you're doing before we close this episode um I have one that I think might be helpful is that I have on my website livelabelfree.com I have a free audio training um so if people like listening to podcasts I, I think they'll like it it's like a, a 45 minute basically on-demand coaching session with me and it's called three steps to recovery from an eating disorder as an autistic person um so I think that can be a very valuable resource if you know people are autistic and struggling with disordered eating um for them to kind of get a new perspective on oh how can I use my autistic traits to my advantage to recover um because I think there's this huge misconception that it's harder for an autistic person to recover from an eating disorder I could not disagree with that more I think when you understand your autistic traits and you can embrace them um you can flip them around from being the cause of your eating disorder to that I'm going to actually use these to to become myself and when you are your full authentic self an eating disorder cannot coexist with that absolutely yeah and that's, so, oh, that's to get that training resource. yeah they can get yeah. the training if they just go to my website there's like a huge banner on the home page that says do you want to learn how to recover from your eating disorder as an autistic person watch my free training um I mean you can't miss it honestly <laughs> <laughs> Okay, brilliant. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. I'm yeah, you so excited for your new book to come out. Me and too. thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and your experience with everybody.
Thank you so much, Julia, for having me. It was truly an honor. And thank you so much to everybody for tuning in and listening to this week's episode. And I will see you all next week. Much love to you all.